2: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
3: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
2: And today we're discussing An American Werewolf in London, released August 21st, 1981. It was written and directed by John Landis and released by Universal Pictures. John Landis was 18 and working as a production assistant in Yugoslavia on the set of Kelly's Heroes in the late 60s when one night he and another crew member were on a run to get something for set and came across a Romany funeral procession. The dead man was evidently some kind of despicable criminal, and to ensure he didn't rise from the grave, he was being buried under a crossroads wrapped in rosaries and garlic.
3: A crossroads? Yeah. So if there's like a lot of foot traffic, you can't rise from the grave?
2: Uh, it's probably just annoying or was it <laughs> paved it's like fucking walking around up there
1: or, or was it paved over like like did they pave it over like, like oh maybe now, now you're definitely not <laughs> Yeah, getting there's it out.
2: cobblestones all over it so you just get to hear horses clopping over your face the experience stuck with landis and he wrote a script about a man his age being confronted with that kind of supernatural experience Because of the unprecedented mix of genuine horror and, at times, absurdist comedy, he was told time and time again that the project was unfilmable and it was shelved for a decade. After providing some uncredited rewrites for The Spy Who Loved Me, Landis even approached Albert Broccoli about producing, to which he responded, Hell no, it's weird. (laughs) When writing the story, in 68, Landis envisioned Donald Sutherland from Kelly's Heroes in the lead, Later, Michael Beck was considered based on his performance in The Warriors, but Polygram shot him down after the box office failure of Xanadu in a role that, ironically, both Griffin Dunn and David Naughton had auditioned for. Yeah. They both tried out for Michael's role in uh, Xanadu.
1: I-, I I think he would have been fine.
2: Yeah. John and Deborah Landis had been longtime friends of Jenny Agutter and had her in mind for the Alex role from the beginning. Landis built a cult following in the 70s with several comedic efforts, but kept in touch with regular collaborator makeup artist Rick Baker, fully intending to come back to the werewolf script when he had the sway to get the movie greenlit. After the dual successes of Animal House and Blues Brothers, Landis was entering blank check territory, and Polygram Pictures volunteered a $10 million budget to produce An American Werewolf in London. He immediately reached out to Rick Baker, who was just gearing up to start on Joe Dante's The Howling, But when Landis lost his shit over the phone, Rick Baker agreed to step away from the project and leave his protege, Rob Bottin, in charge to keep a decade-long commitment to working with Landis on a werewolf film. Baker even turned down an invite from Spielberg at the time to work on his upcoming sci-fi blockbuster E.T. the Extraterrestrial, and the job went to Bay of Blood and The Hand makeup artist Carl Rimbaldi, who would get his chance to tackle a werewolf film three years later for Silver Bullet. Universal was set to distribute and made repeated fruitless efforts to convince Landis to cast the film with Blues Brothers leads Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. What? That's what they wanted because they knew it would make a lot of money.
3: That's not the same movie.
2: But he stuck with relative unknowns David Naughton and Griffin Dunn. The film was the first in 15 years to be given permission to film in Piccadilly Circus and as Landis told us before a screening at the New Beverly, he didn't expect them to extend the courtesy to any filmmaker ever again after their grueling production. The soundtrack is obviously packed with popular upbeat tunes that feature the word moon in their titles, including several covers of Richard Rodgers' song Blue Moon. A few songs didn't make the cut, including Elvis Presley's version of Blue Moon, which Presley manager Tom Parker refused to license. It was replaced with Bob Dylan's version temporarily, and finally Bobby Vinton's rendition, which opens the film. Dylan's Blue Moon and Cat Stevens' Moon Shadow were both rejected from inclusion by the artists themselves, citing religious objections, not wanting their work to be associated with a werewolf story. The film would eventually win the first official Academy Award for Best Makeup at the 54th Annual Ceremony, and at the 82 Saturn Awards, it took home Best Horror Film and Best Makeup alongside its nominations for Best Actress and Best Writing. Michael Jackson was also a great fan of the film, and went on to employ Landis and Rick Baker, and the production of his celebrated 1983 Thriller music video, considered by many to be the second greatest music video of all time. What's the first? Jamiroquai's Virtual Insanity. In 1997, a radio adaptation was produced and brought back Jenny Agater, Brian Glover, and Johnny Woodvine to reprise their characters from the film. A disappointing sequel called An American Werewolf in Paris was released on Christmas in 1997. The title is likely based on a threat made by Landis during the first film's pre-production when Griffin Dunn's work permit was denied by the British government, who insisted there were plenty of American actors in the country to play the character. They approved everyone except for Griffin Dunn (laughs) and then said, recast that role. But rather than recast it, Landis threatened to move the entire production to France and change the title to An American Werewolf in Paris, which I think might actually be a better title as a reference to the 1951 film An American in Paris. In 2009, a documentary on the making of the film called Beware the Moon, Remembering An American Werewolf in London was released. And the same year, Dimension Films announced they were taking steps toward a remake with producers Sean and Brian First. After years of no movement, reports surfaced in 2016, implying that John Landis's son, Max Landis, would write and direct a remake, kind of like Jason Reitman recently picking up the Ghostbusters mantle. In 2017, Max announced on Twitter that a first draft of the script was complete, but in the years since that announcement, accusations of emotional and sexual abuse have emerged, and the project seems on hold at best. Walking Dead creator Robert Kirkman was briefly attached to a reboot, but I haven't heard anything from that either. There is no Slaughtered Lamb Pub in East Proctor, but one now exists in Greenwich Village in New York City within walking distance of Griffin Dunn's home. After the studio logos, we see a dedication to Jim O'Rourke, producer of Landis' first film, 1973's Schlock, who died of lung cancer just prior to the beginning of production. The film starts in what is meant to be British countryside. Bobby Vinton's Blue Moon plays on the soundtrack. We see an old truck rattling down the road full of sheep with two American tourists tucked into the bed. The driver lets them out near a sign at the edge of East Proctor. Both men are dressed in puffy jackets that were reportedly meant to resemble spacesuits suits to emphasize their alienation here. I would also guess that David's being red and Jack's being green is meant to foreshadow their fates. Mm. Though I have seen it mentioned that the red was meant to evoke Red Riding Hood. Before leaving, the man dropping them off gives them a bit of local advice.
0: Boys, keep off the moors, stick to the roads, the best of luck.
2: Apparently, these American friends, Jack and David, have grand plans to explore Europe and decided to start with Northern England, saving Italy for later. As they walk, Jack can't shut up about a girl he has the hots for named Debbie Klein back home. David tries to point out that, while admittedly attractive, Debbie is a shitty person, but Jack doesn't care. David lures Jack into a classic knock-knock joke, where you force the other person to make a joke by telling them to say knock-knock first, and Jack does not understand it. (laughs) After a day of walking and veering wildly off the roads they were advised to stick to, they find a small village. In town, they locate a bar called the Slaughtered Lamb. As soon as they step inside, the place goes silent. It's crowded with patrons, but they all stop to give the stink eye to the American tourists. They ask the bartender for permission to come inside since it's so cold tonight, and she gives the slightest of nods. They take their seats at a table and endure the angry glares of the locals. Everything warm they try to order is not available until the bartender offers to make them tea. David points to a five-pointed star scribbled on the wall of the pub.
0: It's a pentangle, a five-pointed star. It's used in witchcraft. Lon Jr. And Universal Studios maintain that's the mark of the wolfman. Oh, I see.
2: He recognizes it from the 1941 George Wagner film, The Wolfman. Well,
0: that's a very rare piece. It shows the wolf and the pentagram, the sign of the werewolf. Werewolf?
2: What's that? He refers to it as a pentangle, but I feel like it's more often called a pentagram. Apparently the words are interchangeable.
3: I thought pentagrams were in circles. Are they not necessarily in circles?
2: No, but there is a word for that. It's called a pentacle oh. when it's in a circle. I had to look all these up today. <laughs> David jokes that maybe the owner is from Texas, so Jack jokingly says, remember the Alamo to the bartender. She tells them she does remember the Alamo, but she's referring to the John Wayne film, which she claims to have seen in Leicester Square. Jack dares David to ask what the candles are for. One of the locals gets real loud so he can share a story about how racist Americans are. Oh!
0: there was this airplane over the atlantic on its way to new york and it was full of men from the united nations (laughs) go on ask
2: him you ask him and when it becomes clear the plane will not make the trip they throw everything off the plane to lighten it and eventually they have to start ditching passengers the frenchman says vive la france and leaps out to sacrifice himself the englishman shouts god save the queen and jumps And finally, the American from Texas shouts, remember the Alamo, and throws the Mexican out of the plane. The entire bar, who seem to have heard this joke many times before, laugh hysterically anyway, especially Rick Mayall, who chokes a big cloud of beer mist across the chessboard with his laughter. Jack kills the laughter dead by asking point blank what the star on the wall means.
0: Excuse me, what's that star on the wall for?
2: And the guy playing darts misses the board entirely for what he claims is the first time. David decides it's time to leave, and as they prepare to go, the bartender pleads with her customers not to let these men go out alone at night.
0: Wait! You just can't let them go? Go. Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. Thank you. Beware
2: the moonlights. Jack and David wander off into the night in search of somewhere to stay. And we cut back to the bar, as the bartender continues pleading with the other men to bring them back.
0: You can't let them go. Should the world know our business? It's murder then. Then murder it is. It's in God's hands now.
2: A gust of wind blows clouds out of the sky to reveal the full moon. It starts pouring on the men outside, and the bartender supposes that perhaps that will protect them. From inside the bar we hear a series of wolf howls, and everyone in the room seems to recognize it immediately. Jack and David hear it in the middle of a field where they find themselves having walked far off the road into the moors.
1: Yeah, how did, how did I. I was like, what are you doing?
2: It seemed like they're doing it on purpose. Yeah. Because they're, they're bound to get lost the way they travel anyway. You follow a road to the next town or to the yeah. next thing. You don't yeah. just wander off the road into the field. Especially
3: in the middle of the night, in the middle of the country. Right. Like, you don't know when you're going to come across something next.
2: And if you're not on a path, then you're just as likely to loop back around to where you already were. You're not going to make progress this way. It's a full moon. Beware the moon.
0: And stick to the road. Oops.
2: They decide it's probably best to return to the slaughtered land, but very quickly they've already lost their way as far as where the bar even was. They can't find their way back to it now, and the howls are getting louder. They hear a growling just beyond the edge of their line of sight. Eventually they see it, right in front of them. They try to run away, and they don't get far before David trips, scaring himself. As Jack leans to offer a hand and help David up, he's attacked by a shadow from the darkness. Instead of helping his friend, David makes a run for it while the wolf gnaws at Jack's throat. As he runs away, he can still hear Jack pleading for help, and David returns to help his friend. Apparently, even on set, Dunn's screams were frighteningly visceral for the crew to hear. Mm. Like, people were like, oh yeah, I was just walking back to my car, and I could hear them shooting the scene, and I f- was terrified for Griffin Dunn that something awful was happening oh, to God. him. David's help is not much use, though. Jack seems dead already from blood loss, and before he can do anything, the same monster knocks David to the ground. Suddenly, all the bar patrons appear, armed with shotguns and fire on the monster, knocking it off David into the grass. David lies in shock, staring up at the fog blowing over him. He rolls his head to look at the monster and sees, instead, a naked old man shot full of holes and caked in steaming blood. I have a real problem with this.
3: Is it because it's a small town and when you're not a werewolf, you're the only person that's not with everybody in the bar.
2: <laughs> Are you talking about the mystery of who the werewolf would be? Yeah, maybe.
1: Also, if it's such a, it's like it's such a problem, they're all so scared of it. It's like, oh, you can just
2: shoot it. Yeah, and it's this easy to kill. It's like, why didn't you just do that?
3: A bunch of farmers, go ahead and shoot the thing.
2: I've heard people suspect that these people were at the bar specifically on a werewolf hunt, though. That that's why they all meet up there on a full moon. Then
3: you wouldn't, you wouldn't hesitate to yeah. go after the guys and save them
2: uh, unless they were using them as bait right exactly oh apparently theatrical audiences were unfamiliar enough with general werewolf lore that they were confused by this moment in the absence of any reverse transformation they were like who's this old man did they shoot one of their own on accident why is this why guy is, he naked? is he naked we dip to black and david wakes up in a hospital as a nurse opens the blinds to let some light in this is nurse alex price played by jenny Agater. She checks his eyes for a pupillary response because she just heard him talking in his sleep. Another nurse, Nurse Gallagher, enters the room and mentions that the American embassy is now involved because he's from the U.S. It turns out Nurse Gallagher has been doing some investigating of Iran. <laughs> Charles
0: says he's from New York. Oh, well, I think he's a Jew. What makes you
1: say that? I've had a look. Really, <laughs> Susan, that wasn't very proper. <laughs> Besides, it's common practice now. Also, what, what is... What does that mean? Like, as far as like, oh, I think he's from New York. No, that can't be. because No
2: way. He's from New York. He's probably (laughs) Jewish. And it's like, yeah, there's no Jewish people in New York. (laughs) And the streets are paved with cheese. I
3: was just worried you were going somewhere else.
2: No, I'm just saying because there are cats in America. (sighs) Neither of them has noticed the doctor, Dr. Hirsch, who has entered the room behind them and is disturbed by their conversation. Nurse Price mentions that David said the word Jack, and Dr. Hirsch recognizes the name as David's deceased friend. He tells Nurse Price that the two of them were attacked by an escaped lunatic in East Proctor. Dr. Hurst takes his turn inspecting David's pupils, and we see a few deep slashes on either side of David's face.
3: I do like that they use the word lunatic to describe him. Yeah. yeah. I think that it's
1: accurate.
2: Yep, absolutely. These scratches on his face, though, don't seem enough to warrant an extended hospital stay. Like, I feel like they would have just sent him home with somebody.
1: Well, we we, yeah, we never really see the extent of his injuries like that he might have on his torso.
2: Yeah, he, I guess he has a claw mark on his upper chest and he has yeah. these two scratches on his cheek. We dissolve into his dreams in a POV shot scampering over hills in the wilderness along a path.
1: But one of the reasons that these injuries don't look so bad thats that it's been three weeks. Right, yeah. So he's had three weeks of healing.
2: Which is also weird. And we'll get into why it's weird that it's been three weeks later. David is somehow woken up just as Mr. Collins, the man from the American Embassy, has arrived to the hospital. Collins is being played by Frank Oz. Of course, David's first waking thought is of Jack, and the doctor informs him of his friend's death. Collins informs him that David and Jack's parents have been told what happened. David has a hard time accepting what's going on and struggles against the doctor to escape his bed. Nurse Price is called in to sedate him, and Mr. Collins seems to have no respect for the trauma David has gone through. Frank Oz is essentially speaking in his Fuzzy voice here. Yeah. And it makes it all the more amusing.
1: <laughs> I couldn't get it out of my head. Yeah. I, I appreciate
2: how upsetting
0: this must be for yes. you, please, Mr. Kessler! Uh, 20 milligrams, Sagittal IV, please. I appreciate how how upset you are, but but this is this is no reason for hysterics. Mr. Kessler? Mr. Kessler, try not to excite yourself!
2: As the doctor ushers Mr. Collins out of the room, he gets even angrier at David for no apparent reason. These
0: dumbass kids, they never appreciate anything you do for them.
2: Isn't it weird that he's been here for three weeks, potentially in a coma? Yeah. And his parents haven't visited, nobody's come to visit him. His friend died. Yeah. They went to his funeral. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't come here to check on their son who's been unconscious since the attack.
3: You get to fly across the ocean and he's not awake anyways.
2: I guess. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, because his,
1: Jack's body has already been sent back to the States.
2: Right. And buried. And his family knows he was injured, potentially to the point of brain damage, but they don't know. You would think they would come here and see him in case he didn't wake up.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
2: The doctor mentions to David that the lunatic who attacked him has left some minor scars behind, and David corrects him it was no lunatic, it was a wolf. Later in the doctor's office, Inspector Villiers and Sergeant McManus from Scotland Yard are sent in to speak with him. The sergeant repeatedly embarrasses himself before enduring looks of disappointment from the inspector. An associate of Dr. Hirsch's calls the office, and Hirsch asks his secretary to relay that he has died. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to talk to this person. The sergeant loudly knocks over a pile of interlocking bedpans, and he takes his time sorting them out on the floor. Later, David confirms for the inspector that they were not attacked by a lunatic, but an animal, and the sergeant seems to believe him. The inspector lays out the plot of the film thus far rather succinctly.
0: Sergeant McManus, are you suggesting that David and Jack were in fact attacked by some animal and that the officialdom of East Proctor has conspired to keep it a secret?
2: The inspector tells David he has an autopsy and the testimony of several witnesses which contradict David's recollections of the incident. I'm assuming he's talking about the autopsy of the lunatic.
1: Oh, I was gonna say the autopsy of Jack.
2: Well wouldn't that imply it was an animal? I don't know. Wouldn't his injuries on David imply it was an animal? Either way, I think the autopsy that points the least to an animal attack is the old man with a bunch of bullet holes in him. I guess that's fair.
3: <laughs> but I mean, people are animals. They could they could they could slice up if if your lunatic has sharp nails, they could so slice So he should them. say
2: it was an animal attack. He's like, "Yes, I know." Yeah. Humans, humans are animals.
3: And, and corporations are people. Therefore corporations Corporation are animals? did this. <laughs>
2: After the men from Scotland Yard leave, David tells Dr. Hurst that he doesn't understand how any witnesses could possibly have come forward since it was so dark when they were attacked. We cut back to that POV moving through the wilderness, and now in wider shots, we see David naked running through the hills. We see him tackle and decapitate a small woodland creature before eating it raw on a hillside. Next, we see Nurse Price dealing with children in a pediatric ward before popping in to check on David and ensure that he's eating his meals. She's been tasked with giving him his medicine, but it needs to be taken with food, and he's refusing to eat, so she's stressing the point.
0: Shall I be forced to feed you, Mr. Kessler? Uh,
2: You can call me David. Shall
0: I be forced to feed you, David? You know, this is absurd. I'm not hungry. I don't want any food.
2: Nurse Price sits down next to David and puts a napkin across his lap, cuts his food, and then feeds him one forkful at a time. She literally has to pinch his nose to get him to open his mouth. It's clear this feeding session was actually a flirtation between them, and we cut back to David now, in the outfit he was attacked in, running through the woods in another dream. He stops against a tree and notices himself in a hospital bed in the woods. Nurse Price approaches him while he sleeps, and smiles at him just as David's eyes snap open to reveal a pale white face with fangs and bright yellow eyes. Of course, as we've discussed in our Condor Man and Scanners reviews this season, the contact lenses were glass, and David Naughton said that they were the most uncomfortable part of this entire production, which is saying a lot considering what he goes through in this yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah. Back in his hospital room, David tells the doctor that his dreams have been more vivid and bizarre than ever in his life. When Doctor Hirsch refers to David's attacker as a man again, David is quick to correct again.
0: Doctor, I told you it wasn't a man. It it was an animal, a, a big wolf or something. A rabid dog.
2: He mentions Jack's horrific wounds and asks the doctor to explain them, but the doctor admits he never saw Jack, and David had already been treated when he arrived at the hospital. David invites Dr. Hirsch to confirm his testimony with the patrons of the slaughtered lamb in East Proctor. Later, David awakens to find Nurse Price beside his bed reading A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court to herself. He surprises her with a compliment and she offers to read it out loud. Apparently Landis was attached at one point to a film adaptation of the story, but it also relates to the film in that it's about an American in a disorienting situation in England. Nurse Price is obviously bonkers gorgeous for this whole movie, but this scene in particular stands out for me, I think. The story she's telling dissolves into a Muppet Show rerun on a Trinitron television in a living room. Miss Piggy and Kermit are arguing over whether violence between puppets can be art. This episode never aired in the U.S., so people often assume it was a fake episode produced for the film, but it was not. In a wider shot, we see two young children sitting on a carpet watching the show, a father reading the newspaper, and older brother David sitting at a table in the background. There's a knock at the door. David's mother asks literally anyone to answer it, and eventually her husband rises to get the door. The knocking gets more and more erratic as he approaches, and when he opens it, he finds a bunch of demons in German war helmets firing Uzis into the house. They're like pig werewolf Nazi characters. Yeah. David's father is quickly gunned down, and when David tries to rise from his chair, another Nazi demon grabs him from behind and holds a knife to his neck. David's mother is blasted out of frame in the kitchen, and a soldier kicks in the television screen before spraying the two children with a hailstorm of bullets, and in a wide shot we see them caked in blood across the carpet as the demon starts setting fire to the house. The one behind David slashes open his throat, and he wakes with a startle in the hospital room. He informs Nurse Price beside him that he's just had a nightmare, and she stands to open the curtains just as another Nazi demon emerges and stabs her repeatedly to the floor, and David awakens from a second dream down.
1: <laughs> Bwah. A Dream within a dream. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Uh the the sound that this one is making, this kind of like high pitched squealing yeah. sound. <coughs> they use this sound effect a lot in crawl. Oh, do they? Yeah, I was like, I was like, oh god, I know that sound all That's too well.
2: Funny. The next morning, an Indian doctor brings in a full breakfast for David. When he's left alone to consume it, he looks up from his tray and finds the brutally mangled corpse of Jack staring back at him.
0: Can I have a piece of toast? Get the fuck out of here, Jack.
2: Obviously, the werewolf transformation scene, which will come later, is one of the greatest makeup jobs in the history of cinema, even by today's standards. But for me, Jack's makeup here is the most impressive thing in the movie.
3: Just the floppy cheek (laughs) yeah the floppy (laughs) cheek and just the
2: the blood is so perfectly done and and there's no seams to anything yeah i think what makes it so impressive to me is that usually when actors are in this much prosthetic pieces it limits their motion a lot but jack is able to move very fluidly and the full strength of his personality is showing Mm -hmm. through even though so much of his face is covered he starts to help himself to David's breakfast and David sits there still in shock. Apparently the neck prosthetic was also built so that a piece of toast could fall out of his neck after we see him <laughs> chewing on the toast but Landis had to pull that moment and a few others to get the movie down to an R rating. Oh no. yeah. <laughs>
3: Toast falling out of the neck is going to put it in past an R rating? Yes. Appar- D- apparently stupid. he was just
2: as confused by that.
3: That, that makes it funny, yeah. not gruesome. That makes
2: it less scary. <laughs> David... You're hurting my feelings. David asks Jack to confirm that he was buried in New York, and Jack tells him about everyone who came to his funeral. He mentions that his crush, Debbie Klein, came and cried. So you know what she does?
0: She's so grief-stricken. She runs to find solace in Mark Levine's bed. Mark Levine? An asshole. Life mocks me even
2: in death. I love that already David is ready to just have this conversation and seems to have forgotten the fact that he's chatting with his friend's ghost. Now Jack gives in the bad news. The monster that attacked them was a werewolf. David is not ready to hear this part, but Jack continues. And he covers his ears, but I feel like if this is a hallucination, that's not gonna muffle him at all. Because Jack died an unnatural death, he's condemned to this limbo until the werewolf's bloodline has ended. The werewolf that attacked them is dead, but the line continues because David was infected.
0: Shut up. The wolf's bloodline must be severed. The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed.
2: It's you, David. Which begs the question, why if it was within their power to kill all werewolves, would the patrons of the slaughtered lamb allow David to receive medical treatment for his wounds? Yeah. Do they well, not maybe, know that that's how it's communicated? Maybe they
3: not know the rules because they didn't turn into a werewolf and have some ghost of a dead friend tell them the rules.
2: Okay, that makes sense then. Either way, they could have just safely shot him and been done with it. Also, shouldn't there be a lot more ghosts here or was Jack literally the first victim in the entire werewolf lineage? I think well, Because he didn't kill Jack.
1: Right. That's true. He may as well have by running away. <laughs> sure.
2: Okay. May, yeah. That's just the, the werewolf curse being judgmental. Yeah.
3: I mean, it seems like. You killed him. It seems like the spirits have the opportunity to be there or not. So maybe guess, he's the yeah. only one that wants to be there.
2: Right. But it feels like the rest of them should be talking him into killing himself all the time. There should be hundreds of people here yeah, stretching maybe. back centuries.
1: But maybe they're just all. But because the, the body seemed their physical bodies seem to rot with their. Their. Oh, so they're just bo- dust now. Yeah, <laughs> they've <laughs> they, they, been they, around for
2: too long. Dem
3: to walk the earth as a pile of
2: dust. Yeah, it's not so much walking at that point. I guess just v- fluttering the blowing? earth. Blowing. <laughs> Jack informs David that if he doesn't kill himself, he will kill others, and David hits the call button for the nurse to escape this conversation.
0: Beware the moon, <laughs> David.
2: When Nurse Price gets to the room, Jack is gone, and she consoles David. He confides in her that he's a werewolf, and he was just chatting with Jack. They conclude together that David was simply having another vivid dream. Weirdly, she takes this moment to bite the bullet and invite him to stay with her when he is dismissed from the hospital.
3: Bite the silver bullet?
1: Nah. <laughs> Yeah, because this this red flag isn't uh, isn't that red, I guess. Yeah.
2: They get groceries on their way back to her flat, and she's careful to double-check the cashier's work totaling up her items. She worries that her pay won't keep up with inflation. Later on the tube, David makes funny chimp faces at Nurse Price, who I guess I'll start calling Alex now, across a subway crowded with punks. It looks like David's actively trying to get his ass kicked by these guys, but nobody really reacts except Alex, who finds it very funny. When they get home, Alex offers him a tour of the place, ending in her bedroom, and David makes a note that there's only one bed. Alex admits to finding David very attractive and bringing him here with the intention of sharing the bed. She prefaces the invitation with a disclaimer that this isn't something she does all the time. Only seven times so far. <laughs> she invites him to watch television while she takes a shower, and of course we cut to them taking the shower together under Van Morrison's Moon Dance on the soundtrack. As with most of the nude scenes we discuss, Agater has mentioned that the crew seemed to double in size the day they needed to shoot this scene. Do you guys recall the last time we saw two characters showering together? Yes. And that was... I'm trying to think of the name of the movie.
1: (laughs) We just fucking watched it.
2: How could you possibly forget? Right? It's not just a random cliche phrase for an action title. Eye for an eye. That's it. Oh man, that took a minute. We dissolve from shower kissing to bed sexing. In the middle of the night, David stands to take a piss, and when he pushes the medicine cabinet closed, the reflection reveals Jack behind him, looking much more decomposed than we last saw him. His skin is green now, and David is quick to dismiss it as another hallucination.
3: I feel like the rate of decomposition is inconsistent, because the first time was three weeks, and he looked mighty fresh.
2: That's true, yeah. And
3: now, it's a day later, and he is green.
2: Yeah, three at three weeks, he looked the same as he did the night that he died. Yeah. though not real. I don't be a putz, David. They move together to the living room where Jack jokingly puppeteers a small Mickey Mouse toy, which I'm sure the Universal lawyers tried to talk them out of including. Yeah. Hi, David! Put that down. Jack reminds David that he's a werewolf and he needs to kill himself, because the transformation is imminent.
0: Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. You'll become- I know. I know. A monster.
2: David is quick this time to dismiss all of Jack's warnings, will not be threatened by a walking meatloaf. Alex hears him talking to himself and enters to sit down in the same chair Jack just disappeared from. She also says she heard voices, plural. That's weird. I didn't catch that.
0: What's wrong? I heard voices.
2: He confesses in bed to the second hallucination and repeats the warning that he is due to transform into a werewolf at the next full moon tomorrow night. Alex suspects David's dreams are a manifestation of his guilt over what happened. He asks if she ever saw the Wolfman movies, and she assumes he means the Hammer film, Curse of the Werewolf, starring Oliver Reed. But he means the original Universal monster movie, with Bela Lugosi, Claude Rains, and Lon Chaney Jr. Coincidentally, those films and this one were all released by Universal Pictures. David shares with her a theory he seems to have developed on his own, that a werewolf can only be killed by someone who loves them, because Lon Chaney's Werewolf and the 41 film is unknowingly killed by his own father. Ignoring, apparently, that Lon Chaney kills a werewolf that turns out to be Bella Lugosi's Romani fortune teller for whom he has no established feelings.
0: <laughs> what are you talking about?
2: I don't know what I'm talking about. Clearly this comment was for the audience alone to absorb and to assume that she will have to kill him when the time comes.
3: It doesn't even go along with what we've seen in this film so right. far. Yeah, it's yeah. just yeah. a group of people from a pub shooting an Those old lunatic. Those guys love the they hell think, out of
2: that oh, old Oh man. man, it was like... <laughs> They're best friends. Again, she takes this opportunity to mention how hot she finds this lycanthrope psychosis of his. We cut back out to the moors of North England as a car comes over the hill past the East Proctor sign, where the boys were dropped off in the opening scene. It's Dr. Hirsch, conducting the investigation that the police never did. I love this turn for the character.
1: Yeah, I was like, man, good on you yeah. for like not letting this go.
2: Yeah, because he starts as such a skeptic, but he's at least willing to look at the, the holes in the official story.
3: Yeah, I mean... I get that he's looking at the fact that things aren't lining up, but is he a good doctor if he actually thinks there's a werewolf? I don't think he (laughs) thinks there's a werewolf,
2: but he wants to know why David believes that. Uh. And he also claims whether or not it's true that he was in the area already. So this is just like, oh, you know what? I'll talk to these guys so that I can go back to David and convince Mm -hmm. him with some testimony. He passes a herd of sheep on his way to the slaughtered lamb and moves inside to escape a heavy rainstorm. Like David and Jack, the bartender will not accommodate the doctor's first drink order, but then he reads the room and asks for a Guinness second. I think I'd fit in okay because I'd ask for a Guinness first, for sure.
1: And I can't tell if she was doing a Guinness pour.
2: I I don't know if uh, they hold on it. He tries to start a conversation about the American boys who came through this way a few weeks back, but they pretend not to know what he's talking about. Dr. Hirsch notices the pentagram on the wall and asks what it is, and the bartender is much more forthcoming here than with Jack.
0: What's that? Oh, that's uh, been there for 200 years. Uh, we were going to paint it out, but uh, it's traditional, so we left it.
2: Dr. Hirsch shares with the patrons David's testimony of werewolves, and they're put even more on edge. He challenges the Alamo Joker to a game of chess, but he's not up to it. The doctor, getting nowhere with these people, asks about a bite to eat, but they have nothing for him, and he leaves without finishing his Guinness. But he notices the dark player standing in the rain watching him leave, and approaches for a chat in a neighboring graveyard. The man repeats Jack's warning that David will change, and others are in danger. The chess player catches him and interrupts the conversation.
0: You've changed. You. That's enough!
2: That's enough!
1: I was waiting for a section of the church to fall upon
2: his head. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> omen style? Somebody just gets stabbed?
1: Oh, well, I was thinking more like a uh, uh, Hot Fuzz.
2: Oh, okay, yeah. Like,
1: like waiting, waiting over in the churchyard.
2: Yeah. The loose-lipped dart player runs off into the distance and the doctor presumably leaves town. Back at Alex's flat, she kisses David goodbye on the front steps as she leaves for work and two young girls walking a dog pass by. Their dog barks incessantly at David and the girls find it endlessly amusing. When he returns to the front door, he finds he is locked out. A tabby cat hisses at him until he successfully sneaks back in through a window. Apparently, they found the best way to get this cat to hiss was to hold up another cat. (laughs) In Alex's living room, David growls at his reflection a few times to check it for signs of werewolfery. He flicks on the TV and watches a bit of competitive darts, and then a News of the World promo. He goes to lay down under Creedence Clearwater Revival's Bad Moon Rising. His stomach lures him to the kitchen repeatedly, but nothing in the fridge appeals to him. I'm still not hungry. We cut back to Alex talking to pediatric patient Benjamin, the stubborn child who only says no.
3: Benjamin. Have you ever been severely beaten about the face and neck? No! I thought not. Are you asking him that?
2: Because you want him to because say yes. Because you want
3: him to say yeah. I was like, <laughs> don't you expect the answer to be no?
2: Yeah, I would hope, yeah. <laughs> These moments of her with the kids remind me of our previous Jenny Agutter title, Disney's Amy, where she did a lot of the same work. But I'm not sure it's necessary in this film, unless they just needed something to cut away to to break up other scenes. I feel like the stuff with the kids is completely irrelevant. Yeah. As she tickles Benjamin to end the scene, the camera floats up to a window to reveal a full moon in the sky outside. At home, David tries to distract himself with a book in the den, but suddenly freaks out in the middle of a page under Sam Cooke's rendition of Blue Moon. Jesus Christ! He's immediately tearing all his clothes off. Do you guys recall the last time we heard John Landis using Sam Cooke's music? I was going to say the Blues Brothers. The Blues (laughs) Brothers. Though he is not Sam of Sam and Dave from the Blues Brothers soundtrack, he is listed on IMDb as an uncredited writer of both Soothe Me and Hold On, I'm Coming, but I could only corroborate the former credit elsewhere. David is quickly fully nude and drenched in sweat, screaming as though he were on fire. He lifts a hand in front of his face and his palm stretches to double in length. He's rapidly coated in thick, dark fur all over his body, and collapses to the floor in pain.
3: The hand stretching looks so good. It
2: really yeah. does. It's amazing. All of this looks amazing. So the stretching hand technique was they basically wrapped the prosthetic around four plastic syringes and used them like pneumatics. They pumped yeah. the air into them so they would expand and stretch out hmm. the shape of the hand. His hands seemed to inflate and we can hear his bones creaking and snapping inside of him. His feet, like his hands, become elongated and he's forced on all fours by his changing skeleton. His last coherent thoughts during the transformation are of Jack, who it turns out was correct. I
0: didn't mean to call him me love, Jack!
2: We see hairs and a pronounced spinal column rising on his back. He has fangs now and he rolls over onto his back as his torso stretches out. Finally, probably the most spectacular effect, David's face extends forward to form the snout of a wolf, and his eyes are again treated with contact lenses to appear bright yellow. The transformation seems nearly complete, and we hear the familiar howl from the start as we dissolve to a city street at night as a couple arrive somewhere for a double date. They sneak around their friend's building to play a prank on someone named Sean, but they never make it inside because they're mauled to death by an enormous wolf-like creature on the front lawn. Who knows what it was? Upstairs in the building, Sean and his girlfriend mistake the commotion for hooligans in the park. We cut to the hospital as Dr. Hirsch arrives to ask pervy nurse Gallagher if Nurse Price is here tonight and if she's kept in touch with David.
0: I don't know. Yes, doctor.
2: We cut back to Sean, who steps through the gate looking for his missing friends. In Dr. Hirsch's office, he points out to Alex that it's a full moon tonight and demands her number to call the house in search of David perhaps fearing that he'll convince himself he's a werewolf and do some real harm. Sean continues to look for his friends and finds a lone arm in the grass by accidentally stepping on it. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a severed hand?
3: <laughs> the hand?
2: No, more recent than that.
3: Uh, that other one with the hand in it?
2: Demonoid? Yeah. More recent than that?
3: Uh, student Bodies?
2: No, it, it was another werewolf movie. The Howling? No. Wolfen? Wolfen! The security guard's trigger hand gets bit off. Oh, yeah. We also saw a severed hand in Going Ape this season. There were four (laughs) so far that I counted. Back at the hospital, Hirsch tells Alex that in his investigation, he found no record of the attack David survived. His encounter at the pub has convinced him that there was no lunatic and the villagers are hiding the truth. He refers to the werewolf legend as a sort of mass neuroses. The people in town believed it, and so David believes it.
0: And then it follows that if he survived an attack by a werewolf, Wouldn't he himself become a werewolf at the next full moon?
2: He doesn't mean literally, but he worries that David might believe it and hurt someone, so they try to call the police. We cut to a junkyard within sight of Tower Bridge, where a few homeless people warm themselves on a garbage can fire. Their dog, Winston, is suddenly whining with concern. They release him to seek whatever's troubling him, and suddenly another sound echoes back to them.
0: That's not Winston.
2: All we get is a quick flash of werewolf eyes, and we cut to a subway platform. In the original cut, the bums were given a graphically violent send-off, but at a test screening, Landis was annoyed by how much people were talking about it after it happened and missing the next scene, so he cut the entire attack. Wow. A decision that he now regrets. Because it was super violent, apparently.
3: And that's fine for your R, but toast.
2: Yeah, no, that w- that was part of okay. what he took out, <laughs> and again, for the R rating. He also took out some of the sex scene, which also he regrets. Everything he took out, he regrets taking out.
3: Is there an extended edition at all?
2: Not that I know of. I couldn't find one. I did look.
3: Cool if they had that extra scene.
2: Yeah, with the sex. <laughs> more of the sex. I meant
3: the murder one, but you know, to each their own.
2: In the subway, we see a businessman step off a subway car when he finds himself alone at the platform. He hears grunts and howls echo through the tube and assumes it's a prank of some sort.
0: I can assure you that this is not in the least bit amusing.
2: I shall report this. The man boards an escalator and then moves through a hallway where we can see posters for an all-out orgy film entitled See You Next Wednesday. Do you guys recall the last time we saw an advertisement for See You Next Wednesday? Was it earlier in this film? No. (laughs) I mean, possibly. I didn't catch it if it was.
3: I don't remember.
2: Blues Brothers. The last John Landis movie. Oh. Is that just Landis's favorite porn? It's not a real thing. Oh, okay. Though in Blues Brothers it looked like a King Kong ripoff and it starred Donald Sutherland. It was just a billboard outside the, uh, <laughs> the country-western bar they went to.
0: Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western.
2: The title, as we said in that review, comes from a line in Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and it's a running gag throughout Landis' filmography.
0: See you next Wednesday.
2: Also visible is a poster for Airplane, a contemporary release from Landis's Kentucky Fried Movie collaborators Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker. I also spotted Prom Night, The Changeling, and Tribute as the man panics and races through the station. I didn't see it, but supposedly there's also a poster for the re-release of Close Encounters from fellow Twilight Zone director Spielberg. The man trips and falls face first at the foot of another escalator, and his briefcase dumps its contents across the rising steps. From the top of the escalator we see the man paralyzed in fear looking down below as a werewolf can be seen slowly entering frame and just when you'd expect the attack to begin we hear the snarling of an angry lion on a hard cut to the London Zoo.
1: I also like that you know you're seeing down into the the kind of foyer area and the wolf for starts to creep out from the top of the frame and I thought oh they're going to cut away you know just before they show the whole wolf but they don't they, yeah it keeps, they, coming, it out. keeps coming out coming yeah. out and this is like oh god
2: yeah we see elephants tigers monkeys apes and when we cut to the wolf enclosure we see david naked inside waking from a straw bed and locking eyes with the other wolves in the cage this was all shot in a single take and these were supposedly well-fed wolves but you cannot tame wolves as we mentioned in our wolf interview. so he had to get out of there as quickly as he could He climbs naked from the enclosure and then sneaks around the zoo, taking care to keep his privates obscured with his hands, even when no one else is around, because actor David Naughton, in contrast with his character, is not circumcised, and it would have introduced a continuity error. He jumps out from behind a bush at an inopportune moment and comes face-to-face with an older woman before ducking back into hiding. He spots a child with a bundle of balloons and offers to buy them for two pounds with his obvious lack of money.
3: But, like you have every opportunity to use all sorts of things. Why would you pick balloons?
2: It's funny. I feel like once that woman didn't start screaming, I might ask her for help. Like, okay, you're not terrified of me. Can you help me get me something, please? This is not why I'm here. I'm not here to do this to people. Please help me get clothes. All the kid can see is a talking bush claiming to be the famous balloon thief. Do you guys recall the next time John Landis will direct a talking bush?
1: Yes I can.
2: (laughs) What do you got? The stupids. It's not even the stupids. It's before the stupids. It's before the stupids. There is a talking bush in the stupids. He's directed three talking bushes. (laughs) Wow. Technically it's a singing bush if that helps. Oh. No, it doesn't.
0: Excuse me. Come on. Are you the, the, the singing bush? The, the,
2: the three
1: amigos. Oh jeez. Landis did direct stupids, right? Yeah, he did.
2: Yeah. That's crazy.
0: Oh man bush! You are nature's greatest wonder.
2: David emerges from the plant and steals the kids' balloons, and then, wearing only the balloons, runs past a park bench and steals a woman's fluffy coat. The Balloon Kid narks on David to his mom.
0: A naked American man stole my balloons. What?
2: On set, when Naughton asked Landis why the extras were so far out of frame for this scene, he responded, They're not extras. The zoo's open. (laughs) (laughs) Which it was. Because they promised they could be done shooting before the zoo opened, and they were wrong. Oh, no.
3: But they, they they wouldn't... Did they know that there would be a naked man?
2: The people who run the zoo? Yes. I think so, yeah. They just thought they'd be done before people were coming into the zoo.
3: Yeah, but you check before you open the zoo. No, they didn't do that. You check with the film crew that brought a naked man into the zoo. No, you let people in. I mean, they're the same people who let them put them in with wolves. It's funny,
2: too, because David Naughton in interviews on in that documentary, he talks about how he was he was totally comfortable to do all this nude running around and stuff. And he said, because, you know, I'm in character and that's how it's written that my character does these things. It only gets awkward after John Landis says, cut, then I'm just myself, a naked guy in the middle of the (laughs) the zoo. (laughs) Dr. Hirsch buys today's paper from a stand emblazoned with a poster that reads man or monster in reference to a series of gruesome killings during the night's full moon. The paper's headline reads, Murder Victims Found Half-Eaten. We get a quick insert of the child's balloons blowing away, and then we see David in only the stolen coat at a bus stop. He arrives back at Alex's flat, and she's obviously relieved to see him, if somewhat confused by his attire.
0: Where did you get that coat?
2: (coughs) He tries to recount the events of the previous day, but his timeline skips right from reading the book to waking up in the wolf enclosure. The phone rings, and it's Hirsch. She informs him that David is here, and rational, and he asks if she's read the paper or watched the news this morning. She hasn't, and she doesn't seem nearly concerned enough by these questions. She doesn't even ask what happened. (laughs) She's like, oh, no, I haven't. Anyway, he's here, what do you want me to do? He tells her to bring David directly to the hospital. David seems very horned up and excitable, and he can't stop grabbing at Alex while they seek a taxi to the hospital.
0: I don't know why I feel so good. I haven't felt this good in a long time. You know, my body feels great. I feel like an athlete.
2: They hop in a taxi, and the driver wants nothing more than to talk about the night's famous killings, comparing them to the story of Sweeney Todd.
0: What murders? How much you heard? Last night, six of them, all in different parts of the city, all mutilated. He must be a real white right maniac, this fella.
2: Pull over. David is immediately terrified and demands the taxi pull over. He wants to turn himself into the cops, but Alex pleads with him to come to the hospital instead.
0: David, please be rational. Let's go to Doctor Hirsch. Yeah, be
2: rational, sure. I'm a fucking werewolf for Christ's sake. He corners an English Bobby in Trafalgar Square and takes credit for the killings. But when the man doesn't believe him, David starts spouting whatever anti-English sentiments spring to mind.
0: Queen Elizabeth is a man. Prince Charles is a Winston Churchill is bullshit. That's enough! No! That's David, no Shakespeare's French! Fuck! Shit! Cut! Shit! Come on, that's
1: enough! <laughs> I wanted to say, like, it's like, actually, you can say that here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he asks a random woman if the cop should arrest him.
0: I don't know. Perhaps he thinks it's a prank.
2: And this woman is actually Naughton's wife at the time, Denise Stevens, playing the part. Even after this display, the officer wants nothing to do with David. David confesses his love for Alex, but runs away into traffic to keep her safe from his werewolfery. In Dr. Hirsch's office, he, Alex, and the police discuss their options for finding David before nightfall and the second night of the full moon.
1: I also like that Hirsch is kind of just glaring at Alex. It's like, you had one job. Yeah,
2: all you had to do was bring him here. It's
1: like a 10-minute car ride. What
2: happened? The inspector claims that forensics indicate that an animal was likely responsible for last night's killings, but he promises to locate David either way. David calls home collect to the U.S., from a red telephone box in Piccadilly Circus, the British Times Square. He gives the operator a real phone number for the Nassau County, Long Island area. Unfortunately, only his 10-year-old sister Rachel is home when he calls. He asks her to relay to their parents that he loves them, and he tells her not to fight with their brother Max. Rachel and Max are actually the names of Landis' children. After he hangs up, he flips open a tiny dull pocket knife intending to slit his wrist in the booth, but he doesn't have the will to go through with it. And that's a good thing because he was going across the river, and it wasn't going to work anyway. Across the street, he spots the further decomposing corpse of Jack, standing under the marquee of a porno theater playing the all-out orgy film See You Next Wednesday. Jack points to the ticket booth as if to invite him to a showing. When Landis first wrote the script, he had a specific cartoon theater in mind for the bit, and they were supposed to go in and chat while watching Roadrunner shorts or something, but the Eros Cinema changed hands and Landis rewrote the bit to match the new theater. David finds Jack posted up in the back row of the theater. They sit and watch the porn in silence for a moment, and this horrendous rotting skull puppet scratches its nose absent-mindedly. I like that little detail. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Griffin Dunn was a bit upset about being replaced with a puppet for such a big scene in his breakout role, but he was actually invited to puppeteer the jaw as he spoke on set.
3: Oh, that's neat.
2: In the porno on screen, a couple having sex are interrupted when a big mustachioed man enters to shout at them. What are you doing here? You promised
0: never to do this kind of thing again. I never promised you any such thing. Not you, you Twitter. I've never seen you before in my life.
2: Oh, sorry. And then he leaves. <laughs> Good movie. Mm hmm. This fake porn was actually the first thing they shot for the film and Landis's new UK crew were very concerned about the filmmaker they'd tied themselves to. <laughs> Lindsay Drew, the porn's lead actress, was a page three girl at the time and went on to an extensive pornographic career. Do you guys recall the last time that a Twilight Zone director shot a custom porno to cut into his werewolf movie?
3: The Howling? That's right. <laughs> Joe
2: Dante's The Howling. After the requisite I told you so's, Jack introduces David to all of his victims from the night before. Gerald Bringsley from The Tube he laments how his children will grow up fatherless, and he is cursed to this limbo until David ends things. Next up are Harry Berman and Judith Brown, the couple he killed outside their friend Sean's building. They're drenched in blood, but incongruously chipper.
1: Yeah, she, she's so great. Yeah. She just seems like, oh, hello.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of characters in uh, Hot Fuzz, for sure. They're, like, really happy even when things are terrible. Mm-hmm. And finally, the three bums Alf, Ted, and Joseph are introduced. Everyone takes their turn encouraging his suicide. A gun!
0: I know where you can get a gun. Don't I need a silver bullet or something?
2: Oh, be serious, would you?
0: Madness. Oh, a gun would be good.
3: Yes, you just put the gun to your forehead and pull the trigger. But
0: if you put it in your mouth, you'd be sure not to miss. Thank you. You're all so thoughtful. A knife. An electric shock. A car crash. You could throw yourself in front of a tube. Drowning.
2: (laughs) That's definitely the worst one. Yeah. In another exterior on Piccadilly Circus, the clouds are blown clear of another full moon. In the back row of the theater, David is struck with the trauma of another werewolf transformation. A man confronts him as he panics, and he begs the man to run for his life, but he takes no such action.
1: So what are the rules for the change? Like, the moon has to be up, but not rising. Like, it has to have already risen.
2: And it has to be full, and it has to be shining either on you or on the building that you're in. (laughs) But if there's clouds in the way, it doesn't count.
3: I'm also confused about this concept of like multiple day full moons.
2: Well, I think technically speaking, a full moon can last like up to three or four days.
3: But isn't it only like it's either waning or waxing. It's yeah. only full for a moment, right? But,
2: yeah, that's true. But maybe it's just, it just. It's full enough. It's a matter of <laughs> how much light is bouncing off of the moon.
1: 98% or more. Yeah. There, there has to be <laughs> okay, some so kind of a, a percentage. Range. Yeah. <laughs> It's all the sunlight anyway. It doesn't make any sense. Right. You should be a werewolf in the in the daytime. Oh right. Like don't tell what,
3: them. Is, is, is that the argument? Like what happens to a werewolf on the moon? Like <laughs> are they are they constantly a werewolf or are they it depends not, on which side of the moon they're on? Are they not a werewolf because <laughs> the sun is the light hitting them mm-hmm. or is it reflecting off of the moon? Oh, because well, the, the moon so... is always
2: a full moon to someone.
1: Yeah. <laughs> from from one direction, the moon is always full.
2: If if the werewolf lived on the sun, he would always be looking at a full moon. But he'd also be on fire.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or he could be in one of those uh, Lagrange points.
2: Yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> that makes all the sense.
3: Now we have to write the movie where a guy werewolf fight- on the sun? No, where a guy finds out he's a werewolf when they go to the moon like he's an astronaut
2: oh what do we call this
3: i don't know but it, like that that he becomes lobo
2: 13 <laughs> <laughs> i don't know lobo 13 i don't know what that means a man confronts him as he panics and he begs the man to run for his life but he takes no such action shortly after an usher is attacked and the ticket taker woman is screaming for the police to stop the rampaging monster A bobby finds the demolished corpses of nearly every theater patron and then finds the werewolf chowing down on a torso. He runs for the door and pulls down the shutters. A group of cops try in vain to hold the barricade closed as the wolf pounds at it from inside. The inspector arrives just as the wolf bursts through the wall and catches the man's neck and his teeth. In no time at all, the head comes completely off and bounces across the hood of a parked car into the street. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a werewolf bite a man's head off? I'm gonna say wolfen? That's correct.
3: I don't consider those werewolves. I was trying
2: to trick you, but it didn't work. The werewolf prowls out into the street where a double-decker bus veers sharply around it. It comes to such a sudden stop that a man flies through the windows of the top floor and is then promptly run over in the street by another passing car.
1: This whole sequence is more horrifying than anything else that's happened in the movie. And
2: it's going so fast that you don't have time to process what's dummies and what's not, and it's just terrifying. The pileup continues for another minute as the werewolf continues through the city. We get a quick cameo from director Landis here, struck by a car and pushed through a storefront window, and then we see a car crash head-on into the mess and the driver is ejected through the windshield. It's amazing that none of these drivers have considered slowing down as they approach the (laughs) pileup. They're all just hitting it at full speed. Dr. Hirsch finds Alex sleeping somewhere, possibly his office, and informs her of the incident unfolding at Piccadilly Circus.
1: I was going to say, do you remember the last time John Landis directed a huge car
2: pileup? It would have to be Blues Brothers.
1: Yeah. Broke my watch.
2: (laughs) We finally get a shot of the wolf releasing its trademark howl just as the cops corner it in an alleyway. As they prepare to move in on the beast and hold back a growing crowd, we see more cops approaching, loading rifles in a van. Alex races down the street to the alley and somehow breaks through the police line to approach the monster. Once she finds the beast, she speaks to it as though it were David in human form. She warns him of his certain fate and confesses her reciprocated love for him. When the werewolf flexes to attack, the sharpshooters in the police line manage to strike the werewolf without hitting her as she is instantly sobbing over David's naked corpse in the alley. We hard cut to credits. With the Marcel's doo wop rendition of Blue Moon over the credits.
1: Yeah, the movie just ends. It's like, uh, I watched this with my niece because yeah. she had never seen it before. And she's just like, what?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I was, bet she didn't like that.
1: I love that. Yeah, I really liked yeah, no, it, too. I, she, she was fine with it. I was like, yeah, because what 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 more do you want? It's over.
2: Yeah. Get out. Get out. <laughs> yeah. But I have nowhere else to go.
3: <laughs> she doesn't actually kill him, though. <laughs> no, she doesn't. So that wasn't really foreshadowing. No, it
2: was, it was irrelevant that he... Yeah. For, and it's not even based on the movie that he's talking about. He just says, I think that... You have to love someone to kill a werewolf. You
3: know, maybe that's great. Because these movies, they always have these weird epiphanies that are exactly right. And now yeah. he's just like, you know what? I think I know this thing. And so it's just not true. But
2: it's also <laughs> weird to say werewolves are uh, are just dumb stories that people tell each other. And then say, but I think this one werewolf rule is real because I saw it in a movie that came out in 1941. Yeah. It's like, why are you picking that as your evidence instead of what actually happened to you? But
1: with these werewolf rules for this movie... Where you can just kill them. Like, they can just be yeah, killed by thing. just anything. one shot would kill it. If yeah. you hit it in
2: the head, it would die.
1: I don't understand the villagers, one, living with this werewolf threat yeah. that they've been living with. And they, they are terrified of.
2: Yeah, the only difference between a werewolf and a wolf in this universe is that a werewolf turns into a man sometimes. Yeah. So it's actually less dangerous than a wolf.
1: Yeah. <laughs> they, it's like, they have to know who it is. Yeah. um, And then i don't understand like they're they're horrifying like the horror continues in the village after the werewolf's been killed right
2: they're they're still frightened when he comes back that's true it's just
1: like why? but it's all done yeah it's out of your hands now. well i guess they didn't know that that was the
2: last werewolf
1: oh well that's unfortunate for for all those because they don't have a ghost
2: to tell them you're the last one they just assume there's more out there
3: but there could be no because the whole bloodline has to be gone
2: and jack says you're the last werewolf oh he does say yeah that. the credits of the film offer congratulations to newlyweds prince charles and lady Di, probably as a pseudo apology for the derogatory comments made in the film the disclaimer at the close of the credits also reads any resemblance to anyone living dead or undead is coincidental which is funny the climax of this film is directly referenced within the story of the john landis written and directed masters of horror episode dear woman
1: that's enough. In London in 1981 a series of brutal animal attacks were directly linked to a freak wolf that was gunned down in Piccadilly Circus.
2: I'm familiar
1: with the case. Then what makes this so different?
2: Yeah, this is great. I really like this movie. Oh, yeah, this um, yeah.
1: great. Like I you know, I don't like horror films generally. Yes. Um but there's so much like there's so much lightheartedness in this. Yeah.
2: Um but it still has the heart yeah. to it. And you and you feel their friendship, Jack and David. Yeah,
1: exactly. You, the, you, in the first like five minutes, you get you totally get who these people are. Yeah, and 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 you like them. Like, there's not they're not they're just like very likable individuals.
2: Yeah, and it, I think there's a very clear direct line from this to Shaun of the Dead, where you just have you know the the horror comedy type thing, but also a really genuine friendship between these two guys that are going through this supernatural experience together. But yeah, I I love it. Obviously Rick Baker completely makes the movie. Yeah. I think without his visual effects this this maybe isn't remembered as well cuz the characters are honestly not that deep. But I think when you when you put it all together in this package and it's so professionally done that it's just really it's a great mix. And the soundtrack I think does a lot of heavy lifting too.
1: Well, and and to be so I mean, yeah, cuz when I was describing this movie, I was like saying, you know, the, the werewolf transformation is the price of the ticket. Like, right. That, that's what you're you buying your ticket for for this movie, uh, because, you know, the actors are relatively unknown. Like, I, I really can't name too many things that they're in. Right. Griffin and,
2: Dunn probably works the most out of these people.
1: And, uh, you know, like you you wonder kind of how this film would have continued on in the the zeitgeist of modern culture if it had like larger names in it
2: for sure yeah mm-hmm. but although griffin dunn feels fully formed in terms of like yeah like he feels the most comfortable in his own skin as this character and i definitely remembered him the most from seeing this as a kid like mm-hmm. if you asked me anything about it i'd be like there was that really funny dead guy that's yeah. that's what i remember the most about this movie but yeah obviously the transformation scene is also incredible
1: quick weird side note did did you guys see the tom cruise mummy
2: yeah i worked no. on oh yeah yeah because they,
1: they basically do that with jake johnson yeah and, and as much as i love jake johnson i was just like oh, you guys are just doing american werewolf in london with yeah mummy
2: I, I don't think we should give it that much credit even <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it's really wonderful it looks great it sounds great and uh it did not cost very much money but it made gangbusters so yeah. he, he got to keep working like regular for a while yeah definitely so, thumbs up though oh, obviously. of course right, thumbs,
1: thumbs up. up uh we met you mentioned uh, american werewolf in paris um, yeah yeah i remember watching that movie i think there's like a smash mouth montage like there is a smash at... mouth yeah uh, and i
2: watched it twice yesterday yeah. Why
3: twice
2: uh because i watched it once to take notes on it and then i watched it in fast forward while i was working on other notes
1: uh there's so many things i hate about that movie especially the poster which is just like a bad cgi like bl- blurry wolf face
2: yeah and also the the tom everett scott character is so bad
1: yeah uh but i wanted to say uh uh, do you remember the last time we had someone jumping off the Eiffel Tower?
2: <laughs> Condor Man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the the, the movie, movie, movie starts with them bungee jumping off the Eiffel Tower. Mm. They're like a bunch of thrill-seeker Americans that go to Paris and yeah. they're going to jump off the Eiffel but Tower. You,
1: you can't jump off the Eiffel Tower. It curves it's wider Eiffel at the <laughs> bottom <laughs> than it is at the top.
2: Yeah. It's like <laughs> bungee jumping off the Luxor. It's like, what? You're just going to slide down a bunch of fucking windows. <laughs> So they go up there to jump off the thing, and then Julie Delpy shows up trying to kill herself, which doesn't make any sense. Because yep. from the beginning of this film, she's a werewolf. And so jumping off of this thing, I mean, maybe it will kill her. If bullets—if regular bullets will kill a werewolf, right. maybe she would die from jumping off of the Eiffel Tower. She tries to kill herself, and then they save her by bungee jumping and catching her on her oh way down. Oh, my God. But uh, she, in the story of that film, is the daughter of a British nurse character who presumably is the yeah offspring surprising. of the lead character's here oh the, yeah
3: so it was passed down through genetics
2: yes because his dna was changed by the attack in such a way that her child would maintain the the werewolf gene but that also means that they didn't kill. And survived to
3: adulthood. And, and wh- who was she raised by? That that every full moon she was The okay nurse
2: with? was feeding her hearts that she stole from the hospital. What? Because the fucking hospital didn't notice that hearts were missing. Yeah, human like hearts. Like they're not a huge deal. Like we literally see at the beginning of the movie, Julie Delpy is stealing hearts on her own. And she's like just walks into a hospital and takes a heart and walks out of the hospital with it. And the doctor's like, she stole my heart. And then Tom Everett Scott's like, I know how you feel. (laughs) She stole my heart, too. It's garbage. (laughs) It's really bad. Wow. But the second half is better than the first half. And the transformations are all CG in the second movie, which is terrible. But I have to admit, the first transformation is pretty great because julie delpy's shirt rips open and suddenly she's got she's rocking six nips down the front (laughs) as she turns into a werewolf so that's pretty cool but aside from that there's there's almost no reason to check this movie out other than completism
1: i feel like werewolf movies are tricky like i'm you know other than because after like the first howling we talked about the howling sequels right um and obviously werewolf in in london sequel but uh I, I try to think about other like even like the the newer Wolfman that they made well what
2: about how was teen wolf 2 t-o-o i never watched that one with jason <laughs> jason
1: bateman, bateman yeah I, i've never seen that one either yeah i can't um, imagine it's good <laughs> um but i mean but that's what you do with it you have to make it a comedy like right. you know teen yeah. wolf he's like how do we do a werewolf movie in modern times is well, you gotta make it a comedy now i
2: mean there's like three of those underworld movies and they all have werewolves yeah twilight movies all have werewolves but they're part of an ensemble of monsters right right
1: right i I think i have to say like probably my favorite is uh monster squad
2: yeah (laughs) wolfman's (laughs) gotten hearts
1: hearts. (laughs) and and laszlo playing the uh wolfman
2: right well you also um there's that more recent werewolf comedy that just came out werewolves within which has uh melana van and
1: oh yeah
2: I never actually saw it.
1: Yeah, I wanted to see that.
2: Yeah, the trailer looked good. It's like some snowy town, and, right. and he's like, he's like a cop that joined the oh, force.
3: Oh, that's oh yeah. Okay, I recall that trailer now. It yeah.
1: it kind of it kind of had the vibes of the dead don't die. Yeah, but yeah. with werewolves. Yeah. yeah,
2: I think it's a little bit less artsy than what I assume the Jim Jarmusch one is because I haven't actually seen it.
1: <laughs> it's. It's not super artsy. No. Uh, there, there's a point where Bill Murray just breaks character and talks about working with Jim Jarmusch and is like, I'm doing this as a favor for him because- you know. It, <laughs> That's uh, awesome. It's just like, okay, this movie's just nonsense.
2: That's good. I should probably check that one out. But yeah, where do we have this letterbox, Do you guys?
3: Uh, I have it at number three out of 110.
2: All right. That's it pretty is, good.
3: It's below The Great Muppet Caper and above Arthur all right Uh, and and for the
1: record raiders is still up at the top yeah i figured um i have it at 10 so it's, it's it's in the top 10 uh which puts it uh below arthur but above atlantic city
2: um i have it in fifth which is also below arthur so i have it right next to arthur like you guys do um and above thief but it is in fifth out of 110 for me
3: it's funny. I I did have it directly below Arthur, and then I'm like, wow. Oh, but the makeup's so good. And then I flopped him. But I'm like, but Arthur's so funny. And I know I it's him hard back. to choose. And then I'm like, but the makeup's so good.
2: I just I just love the the heart of Arthur. There's there's so much yeah. like genuine emotion well, to it.
3: It's it, yeah. I feel like this is a really hard hard placement because I'm just like if if you ask me any day, I'd probably rather watch a funny comedy just because I would enjoy it more. But like I think this is a a better made movie i
2: I don't disagree our writer director here was john landis he played man being smashed into window uncredited before this he directed schlock kentucky fried movie animal house and blues brothers and after he directs trading places thriller spies like us three amigos amazon women on the moon coming to america oscar beverly hills cop 3 the stupids and more recently burke and hare he also co-wrote dear woman for masters of horror with his son max landis Max is probably best known for writing Chronicle, but he also wrote American Ultra, Mr. Wright, and Bright, which I actually really liked. The Netflix movie with uh, Joel Edgerton. Yeah.
3: Well, I really enjoyed that Mr. Wright movie. Yeah, that Mr. Wright's great. Good.
2: With Sam Rockwell. Yeah. Yeah. I never saw that one. Um, he's currently attached as the writer-director of an American Werewolf in London remake, as well as writing for a Pepe Le Pew movie after Pepe was written out of Space Jam Two. We met John Landis at a screening of Tremors and American Werewolf in London at the New Beverly as a part of Edgar Wright's The Right Stuff Festival. And this is evidently Landis' favorite of his own films. Mm. The music here came from Elmer Bernstein. He has 13 Oscar nominations and one win. The nominations were for The Man with the Golden Arm, The Magnificent Seven, Summer and Smoke, Walk on the Wild Side, To Kill a Mockingbird, Hawaii, Return of the Seven, True Grit, Gold, Trading Places, The Age of Innocence, and Far From Heaven with a win for Thoroughly Modern Millie. He scored the Animal House series, Delta House. He also scored Meatballs, The Great Santini, Saturn 3, Airplane, Going Ape, Stripes, and Heavy Metal before this. He's famously back for Ghostbusters in just a few years. Because the soundtrack emphasizes pre-produced music, only about seven minutes of Bernstein's score actually ended up in the film. He did release his own version of the music he intended for the transformation sequence, Which is called Metamorphosis, and I'll play a taste of that for you now. Cinematographer Robert Painter was a DP with credits dating back to the early 50s. He has credits on Scorpio, The Big Sleep, Superman 2, and The Final Conflict earlier this season. He's back for Curtains, Trading Places, Superman 3, Thriller, Muppets Take Manhattan, Spies Like Us, and Little Shop of Horrors. The editor here was Malcolm Campbell. This was his first editing credit. He's back for Trading Places, Twilight Zone, Thriller, Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, Amazon Women, Coming to America, Nothing But Trouble, Wayne's World, Freaked, Hot Shots Part 2, Ace Ventura 2, and more recently, Hot Rod. Makeup and effects came from Rick Baker. Baker worked with Landis as early as his first film, Schlock, developing the monster makeup for that film. I just caught that one recently, and one of the opening shots of the film is like a 15-minute walk from here at the base of the Conejo grade. As we mentioned in our Howling review, Baker and Landis had spent nearly a decade together working on werewolf effects, but then it looked like Landis had abandoned horror, and so Baker offered those techniques to Joe Dante's werewolf title, The Howling. Landis was livid to learn that Joe Dante's film would benefit from their work, but, as I mentioned before, Baker eventually left Dante's project to work with Landis, but The Howling would beat them to the theaters by several months. After failing last year to nominate or award Christopher Tucker for his makeup work in The Elephant Man, the Academy finally added a permanent award for makeup effects, and Baker's werewolf and zombie makeup would take home the first official Oscar for makeup in the new category. Only one other Oscar has been awarded for werewolf makeup, Also to Baker for 2010's The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro. Although I think they ended up replacing all of his practical work with CG. Yeah, that was a CG
3: transformation.
2: Prior to 1981, the only films to get makeup Oscars were special awards, which went to William Tuttle for Tony Randall's Yellow Face Prosthetics in 1964's The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau and John Chambers' work on the original Planet of the Apes in 1968. Baker also has credits on the 76 King Kong, Star Wars, Empire, without warning because he made the alien costume, Altered States, Incredible Shrinking Woman, for the ape that he played in that film, <laughs> The Funhouse, and he's back later this season for Ghost Story. Later he does Starman, Coming to America, The Nutty Professor, Frighteners, Men in Black, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and The Burton Planet of the Apes, which if it has anything going for it, it's incredible special yeah. effects makeup.
1: Man, the the weird transformation in Starman yes. is so weird. In the weird. cabin? Yeah.
2: Yeah turns into like from a wet baby into Jeff Bridges into into a
1: person it's like (laughs) growing and stretching it's like oh it's horrifying
2: Baker based the werewolf design in this film on his own dog Bosco he also plays one of the Nazi werewolves in the nightmare sequence specifically the one with a knife to David's throat David Naughton played David Kessler David is actually John Landis's middle name We saw Naughton for his first feature, Midnight Madness, last season. Before that, he was best known as the lead in Dr. Pepper's I'm a Pepper campaign, which is where Landis found him. But he was fired from that campaign on account of spending 40% of this film nude. (laughs) Do you guys recall the last time we saw people sporting I'm a Pepper shirts? Oh, man, it just happened.
3: Uh, student bodies.
2: Student bodies is correct.
3: <laughs> student bodies. Student bodies.
2: Later, he's Dan in Hot Dog the Movie, Martin Casera in Ice Cream Man, and Ambassador Kessler in Sharknado Five. Kessler being the last name of his character here. He also led a sitcom called Making It in '79 and released a corresponding hit disco song of the same name. <laughs> I'm Griffin Dunn played Jack Goodman. Dunn's main direction for the film was to always be in a generally good mood, despite the worsening decay of his character. We saw him earlier this season as a PA in Lauren Bacall's off-Broadway show in The Fan. Later, he's Paul Hackett in After Hours. He also directed Addicted to Love, Practical Magic, and Movie 43. His father was film producer Dominic Dunn, and his sister is Dominique Dunn, famous for the lead role Dana Freeling in Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. Sadly, Dominique was murdered by her boyfriend about a year after this film's release and a few months after Poltergeist's release. David Schofield played the Dark player. He was N. Dean's man in The Dogs of War earlier this season. He was also Mercer in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and At World's End. Brian Glover played the chess player. He was Harold Andrews in Alien 3. Rick Mayle was the other chess player, We saw him earlier this season as a sailor in Eye of the Needle. In America, he's probably best known as Drop Dead Fred in Drop Dead Fred. But outside the U.S., he's probably best known for The Young Ones or Black Adder. He's back this season for Rocky Horror Picture Show pseudo-sequel Shock Treatment. And he reunited with chess partner Brian Glover on British sitcom Bottom in 1991. Jenny Agater played nurse Alex Price. She was Jessica in Logan's Run, Joanne Simpson in Child's Play 2. And we saw her last as Amy in Disney's Amy. More recently, she's appeared as a member of the World Security Council that oversees S.H.I.E.L.D. operations in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, appearing in Avengers and Winter Soldier, wherein she also technically plays Black Widow. She's also Sister Julienne on Call the Midwife. Naughton had mentioned developing a crush on her as an usher at the Royal Court Theater after seeing her in a performance of Equus, but when a reporter brought it up with Agator, she pointed out that she only played the part in the 77 film, but never on stage. So either he's confused about which version he saw, or the actress he supposedly fell for. She and John Landis both appear in Sam Raimi's Darkman as hospital workers, uncredited.
1: Uh, who? who? Jenny Agatar? Sorry, Jenny. And John Landis. And John Landis? Because I know John Landis is in, uh, Spider-Man
2: 2. Well, he's also in Darkman. She also reunited with John Woodvine and David Schofield in Landis' most recent feature, *Burkin Hare. Frank Oz played Mr. Collins and Miss Piggy. He directed The Dark Crystal, the next Muppet movie, Muppets Take Manhattan, Little Shop of Horrors, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, What About Bob, Indian in the Cupboard, Bowfinger, and remakes of Stepford Wives and Death at a Funeral. He also directed season four, episode six of Leverage, The Carnival Job. We saw him in the Blues Brothers last season and as several characters earlier this season in The Great Muppet Caper, but he's probably best known for the Miss Piggy voice, which is also the Yoda voice, which we heard in Empire last season. Albert Moses played Hospital Porter. He was a barman in The Spy Who Loved Me and Sadrutin in Octopussy. He was also uncredited in The Awakening last season. Jim Henson played Kermit the Frog, archival footage. He's the creator of The Muppets, Sesame Street, Fraggle Rock, The Dark Crystal, Labyrinth. Earlier this season, he directed The Great Muppet Caper and later Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Gordon Stern played Mr. Kessler. He was Dr. Willis Kenderly in Highlander. Sidney Bromley played Alf. He's Engie Wook in The NeverEnding Story and Hodge in Dragon Slayer. Michael Carter played Gerald Bringsley. He's Bib Fortuna in Return of the Jedi. Alan Ford was the taxi driver. He's Bricktop in Snatch. I <laughs> recognized him immediately because his voice is so familiar, but um, he's the guy who feeds everybody to pigs in Snatch. Christine Hargraves played Ticket Lady. She was Pink's mother in Pink Floyd's The Wall. Ken Sicklin played Bobby at Cinema. He was a tree man in Flash Gordon last season. Kevin Brennan played Werewolf, I think that's the old man at the beginning who's shot to death. He also worked on Makeup Crew for The Howling, This, Thriller, and Return of the Living Dead amongst others, and he plays a zombie in the Thriller video. Alan Flying played Man in Raincoat at Trafalgar Square. He was a stormtrooper in Empire and an Imperial officer in Return of the Jedi. Ryan Folsey played the Kid in Trafalgar Square. He plays Kid Throwing Frisbee Uncredited in Blues Brothers. He has mostly editing credits including the lego ninjago movie scoob the adams family 2 and universal's upcoming renfield movie brendan hughes played a werewolf uncredited so maybe that's the guy who's shot to death he's a dancer in the leisure club from outland and he also played stephen blake in return to horror high ralph g morse played a punk on the tube he's a stormtrooper in return of the jedi terence must played bystander he's a hoth rebel and imperial officer in empire and an X-Wing pilot in Return of the Jedi. James Payne played a taxi driver. He's an Erlander in Dragon Slayer. And Quentin Pierre played Man and Street. He was a stand-in for Yafet Koto in Alien and Billy D. Williams in Return of the Jedi. Since 93, all of his credits are as the personal assistant of Morgan Freeman. Kermit and Miss Piggy are included in the credits as playing themselves, though. I think that's everything for An American Werewolf in London. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing First Monday in October which IMDb describes like so. For the first time in history, a woman is appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court where she becomes a friendly rival to a liberal associate. We leave you now with a trailer for First Monday in October.
0: The Supreme Court of the United States. For almost 200 years, it has been the stronghold of men like this. But now, on the first Monday in October... The President has done something that could alter the face of American politics forever. Who's the President going to pick? Who is he? Mr. Justice Snow, I'm going to have to ask you to rephrase that question. A woman. He picked a woman. Great. Good for him. It'll be fun. Who is it? Who is she? Who? Who? The President has just sent up to the Senate Judiciary Committee the name of Judge Ruth Hagedorn Loomis of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Get off my couch. I have to lie down. Do you feel your decisions on the High Court might be influenced by the fact
2: that, well, you're a woman? I hope so. Uh.
0: Aren't a man's decisions influenced by the fact that he's a man? For two centuries, this court has expressed men's opinions, and perhaps it's time for the majority of the population to have one voice in nine in the rulings of the Supreme Court. This is an historic occasion. Like the Jesuits going co-ed. Good morning. The men on this court have got to stick together. After all, there are only eight of us left against all of her. How do you stand his moods, Mason? Every time I see him, he's ready to explode. I'm about as much of a socialist as Donald Duck, and you know it, you brainwashed brahmin! Yeah, he does have strong feelings. Same as you do. Because I'm a woman, your resplendent male ego wants to Thomas win Jefferson me over. He you know an what you educated are, a Justice Daniels? No, the basis you're an electrant. arrogant, self-centered, male chauvinist pig. Walter Matthau is the immovable object. The signing is gonna resign. You think I'd leave you here alone to get sprayed down by the Lysol lady? Jill Clayburg is the irresistible force. You want the liberty to dirty up my liberty. Even in New York, you have to clean up after your dog. What happens when they have their day in court? Obscene, how outrageous. Censorship is an outrage. Makes first Monday in October the funniest day of the year. Is Justice Snow implying that nobody in this city or this country is honest except him? I like women. My wife's a woman. The bench will smell better with a little perfume on it. But Ruth Loomis. Walter Matthau. Jill Clayburn, First Monday in October. In a world where knowledge is king. Two men
2: will strive to. <laughs>
0: oh,
2: sorry about that. We're 100 Things We Learned from Film, the podcast that takes a different subject movie each week and tries to learn 100 things, hence the funny title. I'm Mark. And I'm John. And my favourite thing I've learned
0: so far is that chickens have pea crystals. What's yours?
2: quite do you know the mosquito in the original Jurassic Park is the only type of mosquito that doesn't actually suck blood so in this
0: case no blood no dinosaurs no film
3: so that's us 100 things we've learned from film check us out wherever you get your podcasts every Monday